Well, battles and bands have gone together uh, for millennia. Uh, Not the battle of the bands, but battles and bands. And here we have uh, the, the hymn which resounds the history of the previous chapter. Chapter, four, f- chapter 14 told us about uh, uh, God's battle against the Pharaoh of Egypt and against the gods of Egypt. And now verse 15 is this uh, overjoicing response of praise, adoration to the victor. It's a victory song. And this has been, whether it's, uh, you know, in our Western civilization or pre-civilization, however you want to think about it, you know, the bagpipes playing in order to, to scare the enemy in front of them is whatever it is, the music is here. This hymn is quite amazing. It's the response to deliverance, and deliverance leads to doxology, that is, praise and adoration. This is the first song in the Bible, at least the first song that's identified as a song in the Bible. There's some have identified, oh, about 200 official songs within the Scriptures. I'm not sure that I would limit it to that. Curiously, the last song in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 15, is also entitled, The Song of Moses. This concept uh, brackets the whole of redemptive history, from the Exodus to a new Exodus, from an old creation to a new creation. Now, we might quibble over whether this actually would be called the Song of Moses. I know our, our, in our English translations, uh, the bold print says Song of Moses, but we added that there. Um, the, the Hebrew term for this is the Song of the Sea. The Song of the Sea. There's another Song of Moses that will come in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, nonetheless, when we look at this song, Deuteronomy 32, Revelation 15, they're all just a bit different, and we get the idea we don't have an exhaustive set of lyrics that comprise this victory song. And how could you? Our God is infinite. Our God is eternal. And His victory is absolute. And there is no end of which we could recite of His goodness and His grace. These songs talk about God. They talk about who God is and about what God does for His people and for His own glory. And this hymn recites several uh, facets of his character and of his nature. Now, the the structure of this song is hotly contested uh, within the Bible students' uh, books and commentaries and so forth. I I found it quite fascinating. Let me just show you my take on it. So here we have this initial call to worship in verses 1 to 2. Come, I'm going to do this. I'm going to worship God. Who is he? Yahweh, verse 3. Verses 4 to 10, his right hand. Verses 11, who's like Yahweh? His right hand comes again, verses 12 to 17, and Yahweh will. There's a, there's a future reality, past, present, and future. And notice the, the, the first part, the call to worship is, I will, I will do this. It's intentional. I'm going to do this, speaking first person. Then it shifts to the third person. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Speaking to God, third person. But then it shifts to the second person. God, you, your right hand delivered us. 
And it, and, and it goes on to say, who is like you? There's a, a comparative. There is none like you. It comes back then to the right hand and still second person. Your right hand did this. You brought us to a place. And then there's a future. And this shifts then to the third person, speaking to God out there. God, God will, Yahweh will reign forever. Now, here's, here's some of the themes that, that I suppose we could go to the next click. There's a mix of praise, and I, I recognize that it's all a bit mixed, but um, in general, each of these categories moves between what we'll call descriptive praise and narrative praise. Descriptive praise, who God is, what God is like. And then the narrative phrase, this is what God does. And this is what he will do. And it, it alternates back and forth with this emphasis. Now, we got to somehow preach this. So let's, let's put in a kind of a homiletical outline uh, from this. Next, let's do the next click. One more. There you go. So we'll call this the first part the doxology, that call to worship. I will do this. The second part, dreadnought, but we, we won't call it dreadnought just for the sake of preaching. That's just too convoluted, too, too strange, too weird, and actually kind of a nautical theme, but it was a D, so it fit. Um, the dreadnought, actually, some Navy guys, they're not going to identify themselves as Navy. There we are. All right. Uh, the dreadnought is the original name of like the, the British Empire's first big battleship. It had the big guns of all the same caliber. That's a dreadnought. Well, that's, that's not quite God. But, of course, we got a battle of the sea. sea of, you got it. All right, so deliverance. His right hand delivers, but he's different. He's distinctive. There's none like him. But he's bringing us to his dwelling place, and he will reign. He has dominion. So let's walk through this uh, with these kind of coat hangers uh, to hang their things on. A lot of songs in, in worship um, begin kind of like this one. Here's what I'm going to do. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. I will praise him. I will exalt him. Those are good things, wonderful things. But uh, many of our songs only get that far. You notice? They only get so far as to bringing us to this place of, we're going to say God is great. God is good. And then we kind of maybe, I, I'm saying we in a general sense because Anne leads us in a very special and, and intentional way to get to the character and the nature of God. But in general, right, a lot of our songs get us to this place of calling, but do we actually do it? Well, this is important, though. The call is worship. Many, many gatherings of God's people just start. There isn't even a call of God to his people to invite them with a, a place of rest, a place of repose, a place of redemption. And God gathers his people. But you notice God, God gives his personal name. I will sing to who? I will sing to the Lord, capital letters. I will sing to Yahweh. It's a personal God to whom we come. And he has triumphed. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. He's my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. He's my heritage, my Father's God. 
He, he's kept his promises to his people. Think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and particularly Abraham. He's kept his promise to Abraham that he would bring the seed back into the promised land. They'd gone to Egypt, protected from a famine, but then enslaved and in bondage. But God had promised that after 400 years, they'd come back to the land, and he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And his seed now sings the song, My Father's God. Is this your God? You say, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Hebrew. I'm not son of Abraham, child of Abraham. Well, I hope that you are. Maybe not Jewish, maybe not Hebrew, but I hope that indeed you can call Abraham your father. Here's how Paul reapplies it in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 and following. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that those who believe are the sons of Abraham. And he goes on again in verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You believe in this God who saves? This God who is sovereign? Do you call upon the name of your father, Abraham? Can you call Abraham your father? The father in the faith, belief, trust, resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You call upon him. Well, this is intentional, right? It's, it's descriptive. This is what God is like. This is what God has done. But there's a declaration. I will sing. I will praise. I will exalt. This is a positive declaration. A positive volition and intention to honor the Creator and the Redeemer. Now, I suppose at this point is a good place to, to bring in Miriam because that, she repeats this first line, doesn't she? Do you notice a similarity? This changes the, the grammar a bit, but it's the same, same line. Sing to the Lord. It's imperatival. This is, this is her call to worship. Sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The women singing victory songs is, begins here. There's a great heritage that follows from this. Oh, you could, you could think of uh, Deborah, the prophetess in Judges 4 and 5. You could think of the women who, who sing uh, at the victory of King Saul and David. You could think of uh, Anna, the prophetess, who sings at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and before her, even Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, who says, blessed are you, and, and Mary herself, this beautiful, we call a Magnificat. Songs of war, songs of battle, songs of victory. And Psalm 68 identifies the same whole concept. Every, every procession within the temple was inclusive of, of all men and women and maidens. Psalm 68, verse 24, Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Verse 25 goes on to say, The singers are in front, the musicians are last, and in between them the maidens are playing their tambourines. The same term that's used here of Miriam. 
There is a connection in the Old Testament. It might be a bit vague, but it is clear in, in 1 Chronicles 25, a connection between prophecy and singing. Musical instruments may have a significant application as to how we really think about prophecy. Most prophecy in the Bible is forth-telling, not predicting future. Most prophecy is taking what God has revealed in his scripture about his character, about his nature, and bringing it to apply on a people who aren't living it out. That's prophetic ministry. And music can do that. We had testimony of that just moments ago, didn't we? How that music ministry brings by the ministry of the Holy Spirit a conviction. Well, here we have this beautiful doxology, this call to worship. Verses 3 to 10, we'll combine these two together, these two sections, for the first is quite short. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name, and on it goes to give the descriptions of the battle. Pharaoh's chariots and his host were cast into the sea, his officers sunk into the Red Sea, the floods covered them, they went down like stone. Your right hand is glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy in greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed. What a word. The deeps congealed like gel. Right? Can you, well, just envision that. The enemies said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire will have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy you, but you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead to the mighty waters. God is personal. He's given us His name. Yahweh is His name, His covenant name. He revealed this to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the mount. This is our God. This is personal name. No other name. His personal covenant name. The name by which He's loved us. The name by which He's given Himself to us. The name by which He's redeemed us. Yahweh. And He is a warrior. He's defeated Pharaoh. He's defeated Egypt and Egypt's gods. Every last one of them even those they thought were most powerful. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. You know, we think of the God as a warrior, do you? You consider him as a, a mighty man of war. And I, we know he's not a man. This is a figure of speech, right? The man of war. A mighty man of valor, a warrior. We often consider ourselves as spiritual warriors and we read Ephesians 6 and we said put on the armor of God the shield of faith do you know whose armor it is it's not yours it's the armor of God oh you remember when Saul gave David his armor to go out and fight uh, Goliath the giant and David says it doesn't fit right I'm not used to this I'm just going out with my slingshot God has given us his armor, and it perfectly suits. What do, what do I mean by this? Look, Isaiah 59. 
the whole paragraph is, is powerful and vivid. Isaiah 59, verse 15, God has looked out and he says that truth is lacking. Where is truth? The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. So he takes these matters to himself. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, of salvation. Helmet is God's armor. And that is with which his people are clad. God demands unconditional surrender. And he will have it. God will vanquish every enemy, either by this kind of condemnation that we read in Exodus 15, or by conversion. You come over to the Lord's side, and he brings you in. It is his right hand. The details of the battle ensue between verses 4 to 10. But notice, notice in this a contrast. We started with, I will exalt, I will sing, I will praise, a worship, an intentionality, a volition. But notice the volition of Pharaoh. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the soil, I will draw my sword. My soul will be satisfied. The, the picture here is devouring like a lion seeking what it might devour. My soul will be satisfied with their life. I'll gulp them down. My hand will destroy them. I will dispossess them. Remove them from their inheritance. This, is, this flies in the face of the one true living God. Pharaoh is seeking to take the place of God in his attitude, his position. I will. What a contrast. But no, God will deliver them. Pharaoh seeks to steal and kill and destroy the inheritance. But God will lead his people and he will guide them to a place of inheritance. And it is, it is merely the breath of his mouth. Oh yeah, it says the blast of his nostrils. And then it later says the breath of his mouth. Just a whew, And Pharaoh's gone. The seas open up and the seas collapse. The Lord foils the plans of the one who sets oneself up against God. We have a greater victory. We have a greater victory than even this which they're singing. Death is consumed. Death is swallowed up in victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The death of death in the death of Christ, one Puritan writer would say. We have the greater victory. Now, John puts it this way. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Little children, you are from God, and you've overcome 
them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Is God in you? Is he abiding in you, dwelling in you by the residence of his Holy Spirit? That breath of God that brought you to life, that raised you from the dead, that lives in you. Greater is he that is in you than the enemy that is in the world. Live the victorious life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing and no one can be against us. This God is different. This God is distinctive. In a word, we call it holy. Verse 11, who is like you, O Yahweh? Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Holy, majestic, awesome, glorious, totally other. The creator, not the creation. The redeemer, not the redeemed. He is totally distinct, other in spirit and truth. This is what he promised he would show and reveal to his people. Through this battle uh, of God against the gods of Egypt, Exodus 9, 14, the Lord says to Moses, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants, your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And that's the message that Moses is to give to Pharaoh, that you would know there is none like me. And Pharaoh learned. Pharaoh learned the hard way. God is totally distinct and other. And as we go through the realities of this battle and the battles to come, the other gods are no gods. They're false. They have no power. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot taste. They cannot speak. They are dumb. They are deaf. And those who worship them become like them, says the psalmist, 115. There is no life in them. They're false. And yet, is there not an appeal? Is there not an attraction in your flesh for that which is false? Pursue this one and only true God. Well, his right hand continues to work. Verse 12 goes on. He stretched out his right hand again, and the earth swallowed them up. And you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Yahweh leads. Yahweh guides. Yahweh redeems his people. And he brings them to an abode, verse 13. Actually, the word pasture. He leads us to green pastures. The shepherd who guides his sheep is the Lord. The fame of the Lord has resounded the fame of the Lord has gone forth. The nations have heard about this. Some of them listed here. The inhabitants of Canaan, of Moab, of Edom, 
and terror has come upon them. The, the fame of the Lord produces the fear of the Lord. And their response is not one of humility and reverence, but they too will still see the might of God as He leads His people through the wilderness, as He leads them through enemy territories, leads them through battles, giving them victory, conquest within the land, and inhabiting the land of promise, the land of rest, the place of His abode. Verse 13, verse 17. He gives His redeemed a place. He's taken them from that place of bondage to a a maniacal and grievous master unto a merciful and a gracious Lord. Still a master, but a merciful and gracious master. We've been redeemed. Not by the blood of a, of a ewe lamb. Blood on the doorposts as they experienced in Exodus 12 and 13. But no, that's simply a symbol of a greater and ultimate and once for all time sacrifice to come. The Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Himself, who takes away the sin of the world. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and kept for you in heaven. A place. God calls those who believe in Him out of where they've been born, out of where they've been living, and He binds them to Himself in a new love relationship by believing in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He leads them to His his dwelling, His place of love and protection. There is a past, a present, and a future in this song. The past is what God has done to save His people and destroy His enemies. The present is that He's leading them through unto the place of ultimate rest. In the future, He will reign forever. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. There will be no end. We mentioned the last song in Revelation 15, and it, it indeed ends with this same theme and refrain of motif. Revelation 15 and verses 3 and 4, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, that is, bow down before you, for you and your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the victory of God through Jesus Christ, and this is the establishment of his kingdom reign forever and ever. The first song in the Bible praises God for His reign and rule of righteousness. The last song, at least the one listed as a song in the Bible, Revelation 15, the same refrain, the same repeat. 
how do we apply all of this? Well, let me make some statements. First, beware the destructiveness of the I will spirit. That is the one of Pharaoh. I will pursue. I will make myself. I will save myself. No, it simply leads to destruction. Biblical worship rehearses the works of God. The works of God. His ways in creation and redemption. And worship is is intentional. Yes, there is an I will. I will praise. I will extol. I will exalt. I will sing to God. Worship also celebrates the character and the nature of God. Not only what He does, but who He is and what He's like. My strength, my song, my salvation. Holy, majestic, awesome, glorious, king, warrior. Worship celebrates His works and His ways. Your right hand. Your right hand did that. Your right hand does this. And your right hand will bring us all the way home. It triumphs. It delivers. It redeems. It leads. It guides. It dwells. It reigns. God. And worship is directed to God personally. You, Lord. You, Yahweh, by name. It's personal. And it can be yours. That is the story. Worship is about the story of God. God is the narrative of your story, not the other way around. I know this is a hard text in a sense. I love the psalms. I love the songs. I love the hymns. They are hard to preach. Because the whole content is just laid out bare right before us. This is it. I I know we enjoy the illustration and the story. I do too. And they're good. And they're helpful. But we need to pause and consider that this is the story that we read, that we walked through together. This is the only story that really matters. God's story. God's narrative. And when God is my God, then I fit in His story. Not He fitting in mine. Oh, how subtle is the shift. But oh, so important. Is this what you can sing? That God Himself is your song? Not not simply your needs, not simply the trials and the tribulations, not merely the complaints. They're there, they're implicit in this whole passage, aren't they? But they're not direct. The focus is all on God in the story. Can you sing this?
God is my strength. God is my song. God is my salvation. Period. So, Lord, take this truth. By your Spirit, apply it to our hearts. This is a song that we will sing for the ages. Imprinted in our own mind, in our own being. And may our will be to serve you and praise you. Lord, give us a heart of worship that as a people of God, we first and foremost would be a people who worship the Lamb. And from there, we long to see others, boys and girls and men and women, come to worship this same Christ. And in our worship, we become a, a witness as we dwell richly in His Word. Make it so, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.